Welcome to the Spencer Fernando Show. My guest today is Clinton DeVoe, Canadian entrepreneur and political pundit. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen Clinton on Twitter. Me and him have been talking for quite a while about a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the country and the world. And it's great to have you here today, Clinton. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much, Spencer, for having me on your program. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and hearing from your, uh, your viewers and, uh, and listeners in the coming days. I've uh, been a longtime uh, political organizer, uh, former political uh, staffer, uh, a, uh, a columnist slash contributor to the Ottawa Hill Times and Troy Media, uh, and I've been uh, political campaign managers um, for different campaigns over the years uh, here in Canada. So a lot of political experience, a lot of writing experience, and as you alluded to, uh, I am also a, a business guy that's involved in the manufacturing sector. So. It gives me an opportunity to kind of see what goes on in Canada and what goes on around the world. So one thing you've been talking a lot about is Hudson Bay and the importance it could play for national unity, for the future of our economy. Obviously, energy security and energy independence is a big issue in the world, more so, obviously, since Russia invaded Ukraine. We're seeing with what's happening in Europe and gas prices and everything. So maybe tell us uh, you know, about kind of your idea around that and what you think we should be doing as a country. Yeah, so look, when we look at a map of Canada, uh, you know, we often forget that Manitoba geographically is the center of Canada. And I believe that the future of Canada's economy, and quite frankly, uh, the future of stable global energy prices is going to rest on the shoulders of Manitoba. The reason I say that is because you guys have a wonderful port, uh, some 700 kilometers north of Winnipeg. Uh, called Churchill, which is right on the shores of the Hudson Bay, which obviously feeds into the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, I believe that Hudson Bay uh, has the capability to become an international uh, export energy terminal uh, for Canadian energy resources. Why is that important? Because that removes uh, the political uh, questions uh, from the discussion that are connected to Quebec and they're connected to British Columbia. So we often forget that that northern port gets our products to Tidewater. And that gives Canada an opportunity uh, to, supply, uh, to supply and stabilize uh, international prices with our global partners in Western Europe and other markets around the world. So that's a, a few of my thoughts on it. I'm happy to go into more detail. Yeah, so maybe go into more detail on why you feel that hasn't happened uh, with political parties. You know, I mean, it doesn't get discussed much in the country, even though it could really benefit the country. What do you think the reason is that many of the main political parties don't really want to talk about it? Well, so if we look at the existing government, the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, you know, they have made their, their uh, sort of key issue, if you will, uh, issues related to climate change, and environmental policy, you know, and that's fine. We understand that, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Even, and so, although I understand the Liberals' position, I, I politely disagree with it. Now, if we look at the Conservative Party, they love to talk about pipelines and more specifically, Energy East. They know as well as you and myself and many, many Canadians that the likelihood that Energy East will ever happen is next to zero. So, and the reason for that is because uh, the, the, uh, the government in Quebec uh, doesn't want to uh, talk about the pipelines uh, issue. So we can argue about that all we want. 
that as far as Quebecers are concerned, that issue was settled. So why is it that the conservatives love to talk about that? Well, because it's a great fundraising opportunity, right? So they can send out weekly or monthly newsletters to their membership across the country. And they can say, if you support a pipeline through Quebec or British Columbia, chip in $5 into this campaign and you can help us prepare for the next general election and we'll fight it on those issues. They know it's never going to happen. So what I argue is that adults look for solutions to problems. So knowing that the government in British Columbia and the government in Quebec doesn't want to discuss pipelines, the solution is Manitoba. And why Manitoba? Well, the Hudson's Bay has an average water depth of 330 feet. Why is that important? Because a modern double-hulled tanker ship requires 45 feet of water. So there's plenty of water for a, uh, a tanker to navigate Hudson's Bay. Uh, the other reason why it's important is that Hudson's Bay is essentially ice-free six months of the year. And then you have ice the remaining six, uh, six months of the year. So why is that important in this discussion? Because one month on each shoulder of the, of the winter months, uh, the ice is relatively thin and doesn't require any sort of ice breaking capabilities. So now you're left with four months of the year. So again, uh, very achievable and doable problem. You bring in an icebreaker and you, you clear a path through the Hudson's Bay. People think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would we do that? We do that every day in the winter in Atlantic Canada. So if we look at uh, the province of Prince Edward Island and the province of New Brunswick, there's the world famous Confederation Bridge. We send an icebreaker in that chops up the ice, uh, you know, once or twice a day uh, in order not to harm the Confederation Bridge so people can safely cross back and forth between the two provinces. So we could easily do that uh, in Hudson's Bay. And obviously we would need the federal government to step in and beef up some of the existing infrastructure. So we would want to make sure, for example, that uh, the road network um, would be, uh, you know, a safe road to travel on year round. We would want the, uh, the federal government to uh, maybe beef up uh, the existing rail line that runs to the Churchill port. Uh, the province of Manitoba could step in and uh, beef up uh, firefighting services uh, in Churchill, especially if we're going to have an international export energy terminal there with a great big tank farm that would have you know, 72 hours worth of supply or whatever it is on hand at any given moment. Uh, and then obviously we would want the private sector, uh, you know, to, to work with the, the different levels of government to help improve the telecommunications network. So both the provincial and the federal government could uh, help uh, expedite that issue along when it comes to permitting and licensing and those kinds of issues. And then lastly, and most importantly, um, you know, if we had the uh, government of Alberta, the government of Saskatchewan and Manitoba, along with the federal government, meeting with our energy partners in the private sector and saying to uh, our energy partners, we understand the need of getting our product to Tidewater and we are going to put uh, the, uh, the, the political will, if you, if you will, pardon the pun, mm -hmm. uh, behind uh, Hudson's Bay. And uh, obviously that would benefit uh, the federal government as well as the various provincial governments and the private sector, because we would now get international prices for our energy prices. And, uh, and more importantly, uh, our global uh, partners in Europe, 
uh, instead of having to buy their energy from a questionable uh, regime like Russia and some of the questionable behavior going on in Moscow, they would be able to buy uh, ethical energy from an ethical uh, political partner being Canada. And so I think this is a win, uh, a win-win situation for everyone involved. You think this could perhaps be done in conjunction with uh, the military buildup that I think a lot of people assume is coming. I think it should be. We'll see if the, the liberals actually do that. But a big part of what you're seeing people kind of the, uh, I guess you could say a growing consensus in the country is that there needs to be a buildup, especially in the north, that we're basically can't defend the north at all. Russia's been building bases in the Arctic, so that's a, that's a growing threat there. Do you think it would be something that could be perhaps sold as, uh, you know, a national kind of you know movement or effort to really build up the north and kind of achieve our potential and our future in that region? Most definitely. I mean, I would view this as a national unity or a national building project that would benefit Canadians from coast to coast to coast. And why do I say that? Well, if we look at how uh, Moscow uh, has behaved towards its neighbors of Belarus, uh, Ukraine, um, Georgia, uh, we have to remind ourselves that Canada is also a neighbor of Russia's, right? We share uh, the North, we share the Arctic with Russia. So the sooner that we can put uh, a military presence and economic uh, business presence uh, and show the global community, uh, you know, that we are going to look after our sovereign borders, the more uh, quickly various countries uh, will take us uh, much more seriously when it comes to international affairs and diplomacy. Uh, and if we sort of zero in more on the economy, you know, not only is Churchill and Hudson's Bay important uh, for energy like oil and gas, but the North is also important for things like precious metals. Uh, you know, nickel, gold, palladium, platinum, silver, copper, lithium. Uh, these are all what I like to call the ingredients of an electric vehicle battery. And Canada's North has all of those ingredients. And so over time, uh, as the, uh, you know, as the world of transportation uh, shifts to electric vehicles over the next two decades, um, the, uh, the world is going to be looking for those precious metals. And if we don't protect our north, and if we don't defend our north, then the way uh, Moscow has behaved in Belarus and Georgia and Ukraine they, be, they might be inclined to repeat that behavior with Canada and the North. So, you know, this is an important uh, subject uh, for Canadians. We do need to build a transportation network uh, servicing our North. We do need to build uh, the Hudson Bay Energy Export Terminal uh, to supply the rest of Canada with Canadian energy resources, as well as the global community. And uh, the third and final sort of rung of that is that we do need a military presence uh, in the north to ensure that uh, our uh, political wishes and aspirations are, are going to be respected on the international stage and that our uh, sovereign borders uh, are not uh, intruded upon by uh, questionable regimes from other parts of the world. Why do you think this country really hasn't taken the north seriously? You know, I look at 
you know, most other countries in the world, especially countries that are either superpowers or near superpower, I'd call Canada a near superpower. We know we don't have the, the raw population to be a superpower, but in terms of, you know, educated population, you know, resources, strong allies, access to technology, we're, we're close, you know, we're not too far off. It seems like of all the countries in a similar position, we just coast along, you know, we take it, we don't take things seriously. As you said, you know, I saw Trudeau today talking in Europe and sure, all the words are nice, but you know, the, the reality doesn't match up, right? You know, he's saying, oh, we stand behind Europe 100% or we stand behind Ukraine 100%. You know, NATO's asking for us to have a bigger military. Europe is desperate to get oil and gas from us more, and we're not doing that. So what do you think it is about the country, maybe our history or something that's happened that leads us to be very uh, almost naive about our place in the world and just kind of hoping for the best without working for it? Well, so to answer your question, one of the things that has benefited Canada, but has also hurt us in at the same time, unfortunately, is that we do live in a general, you know, a peaceful hemisphere in North America. And so our biggest uh, cultural, economic, business, political, military partner is the United States of America. And so that's been a huge benefit for Canada. The downside to that, however, is that we have disproportionately focused much of our attention on the United States and less so on what's happening around the world, which sort of feeds into this, this discussion that we're having today, right? And the reason for that is because we've had the free trade agreement with the United States. You know, it's the largest undefended border on the planet. And uh, there are billions and billions of dollars of trade that go back and forth across multiple border crossings between Canada and the United States every day. Um, but what's happened in recent years, and I, I'm glad that this has happened, is that both conservative and liberal governments uh, have signed uh, CETA, the Canadian-European Trade Agreement, where we are attempting to replicate um, the economic and business and cultural relationships between Canada and Western Europe as we have with the United States through the Free Trade Agreement. Now, the problem, of course, is that as we have seen uh, Russia uh, behave in the manner that it's behaved uh, with a, an outright illegal invasion of a democracy being Ukraine, uh, and prior to that, you know, invasions in, in Belarus and Georgia, as we've talked about earlier, is that it's causing Canadians to realize that we can't always uh, depend on our uh, on our neighbors on our friends that there are times where we do have to stand up uh, on our own as a nation and and i agree with your analysis that currently canada is not a superpower but i believe that we have all of the ingredients to be a superpower if we consider the fact that russia supplies somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of the global energy supply uh, and that has essentially been removed from the marketplace today, there's an opportunity for Canada to become a legitimate energy superpower. Uh, you know, we talked about the North and uh, the natural resources like precious metals that are there. There's another opportunity for us to become an economic superpower when it comes to the manufacturing sector and supplying the things that the manufacturing sector around the world requires. Um, and so I do think that 
uh, Canadians understand now, uh, after what we've witnessed in Ukraine, that uh, we do have to uh, refocus some of our resources and efforts when it comes to our military, military spending, uh, you know, developing the North, ensuring that our, uh, our, our exports, whether they're energy or manufactured goods, are able to access tide water uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, because if we don't, uh, you know, we're going to leave a poor country uh, to the next generation of Canadians. And that's not what I want. And I'm sure that's not what you want or your listeners want. We always want to be able to pass the baton to the next generation where we provide them uh, everything that they need to exceed the generation that came before them. It sounds like, you know, one thing that kind of the underlying context is that we need more mature political leadership. And I'm not just talking about individuals, but the, the parties themselves have been, you know, very immature in many ways. And it sounds like especially both the liberals and the conservatives would have to kind of swallow their egos a little bit here, right? I mean, the liberals would have to acknowledge that the idea of kind of trying to strangle the energy sector and just making a, a rapid green transition before there's a market case for it is obviously is a policy that hasn't worked. And as you said, it's left, you know, our partners in Europe reliant upon a country like Russia for much of their energy. And we see the real consequences of that. Russia has more money to buy weapons and kill people in Ukraine because, you know, they have uh, leverage over Europe. The conservatives would also, I think, have to, you know, accept in this case, if we were going to, you know, do what, we, what you're talking about in Hudson Bay and build up our energy sector up there, that would take a lot of government spending, right? Initially, it would be an investment and so there would be a lot of spending initially, and conservatives would often, you know, have a problem with that. And a lot of it would be from the federal government as well. So it sounds like we need leaders who are willing to kind of have more of a long-term focus and put some of those differences aside. Do you see that happening at this point? I mean, I'm sure we'll get to the Liberal NDP coalition, but they had nothing about energy security in their their new coalition uh, document, right? So. Do you see that happening with them or, or what's your thought on that? I, I don't see that happening with any political party in Canada right now, uh, either in government or opposition or any party that uh, wants to one day uh, attempt to form government. We lack vision in this country. So what do I mean by vision? The very uh, topics that you're touching on, right? The ability for us to uh, supply energy uh, to the global community through Hudson's Bay. That removes those political questions about Quebec and British Columbia out of the equation. The ability for us to supply, uh, you know, precious metals to electronics, to electric uh, vehicles. That's another one of these things that requires long-term vision. What else do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's touch on this idea of, um, you know, green energy. You know, the problem with green energy policies, quite frankly, is that Nobody cares about whether something is green or not. What they really care about is whether it's consistent. And so what do I mean by consistent? What I mean by that is Spencer Fernando walks into his office at two o'clock in the morning. He clicks the light switch on and the lights come on. Mm -hmm. If the lights don't come on, Spencer's not going to care about whether or not it's green energy. So this is where uh, I believe the conservatives and the liberals need to look themselves in the mirror and, and think about the rhetoric that they're, they're telling Canadians. So am I in favor of green energy? Most definitely. Am I in favor of inconsistent energy? Of course not. So here's another example that requires vision. If we look at Manitoba, 
Manitoba has tremendous hydroelectric power resources. Why is that important? It's perfectly renewable. It's generally emissions-free, except for the, the initial construction process. Uh, but once that's underway, it's generally emissions-free and it's consistent. So it's there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So what are we talking about when we talk about vision and hydroelectric power? Well, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that uh, Manitoba's neighboring provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta don't have access to Manitoba's hydroelectric power? You know, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that the maritime provinces, so let's look at the province of New Brunswick, how come they don't have access to Quebec's hydroelectric power? They're neighboring provinces. You know, so I think that, you know, we do require vision. So whether we're talking about developing Churchill and Hudson's Bay as an international uh, energy export terminal, whether we're talking about developing uh, precious metals to supply the global EV uh, electric vehicle demand, or whether we're talking about uh, consistent uh, green energy. Uh, you know, in that case, we're talking about hydroelectric power. Um, and so, you know, I look at provinces like British Columbia, like Manitoba, like Northern Ontario, uh, Quebec and Labrador. And I think to myself, we have all of the, the green energy that we could use to, to supply and satisfy our economy here as a country, but we're not doing it. Instead, we're talking about wind turbines and, uh, and solar panels. And, you know, unfortunately for both of those two forms of energy, they're inconsistent, right? If you don't have sunlight outside, well, solar panels don't work very well. If the wind has, has died off, well, wind turbines don't work very well. So we require vision and we require a realistic, serious discussion that we can have with Canadians across this country uh, in order to get these things done. Because we do need a vision for an industrial policy as a nation over the next two decades. Because if we don't start having those discussions, we are going to leave a poorer country for the next generation. Yeah, one thing, you know, kind of what you mentioned about uh, energy connections, you know, between provinces reminds me of kind of the discussion I had with Urban Student about some of these similar issues. And, you know, one thing we talked about is how Canada, it's very integrated with the United States north-south, right? Like, and kind of, you, know, you could almost, you know, divide the country up into sections going north-south with trade, but we're not that integrated east-west, which really makes no sense. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, you could just use one example would be Quebec. They're more integrated in terms of energy with American states than they are with some provinces, right? We have more trade barriers in many cases between Canadian provinces than we do between Canadian provinces and, and uh, nearby states. So I hear every election you see people, they promise, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to knock down interprovincial trade barriers. You know, we're going to, that's a big problem for the country. And yet it never seems to happen. There's a lot of talk about it. They passed some token legislation, but the barriers are still there. Two questions, I guess. What do you think is the reason uh, that those barriers still exist? And what do you think should be done about that? Yeah, so the reason why those barriers still exist is because whichever uh, political party is in power at the federal level, uh, they generally don't want to interfere or create problems with some of their provincial government counterparts. So, for example, uh, in Ottawa right now, there's a liberal government. And if we look at, um, you know, some of the other provinces, so, uh, for example, uh, you know, Newfoundland uh, had a, a liberal, has had a liberal government for a number of years, so they don't want to create problems for that government, and vice versa for the Conservatives. So when the Conservatives are in power, 
they don't want to create problems for some of their provincial counterparts, whether it's in Alberta or Ontario or what have you. But this goes, you know, to our discussion about vision and about an economic future for the country. So the reason Confederation exists is because Sir Johnny Macdonald, despite whatever faults he may have, he believed in Confederation because he believed in the merits of East-West trade, of East-West uh, relationships, so on and so forth. If we look at Conservative Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, he was one of the, the early advocates for the Trans-Canada Highway. You know, again, an important infrastructure project which ran East-West. If we look, um, and those are all, you know, things of vision, right? If we look at Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, you know, he campaigned on the free trade agreement. And yes, that was a North-South agreement, but that required vision, right? It required someone championing a greater vision for the betterment of Canada. If we look at the uh, previous Conservative government of Stephen Harper, uh, regrettably, he wasn't uh, able to actually sign uh, the trade agreement for CETA because it, it, they ran out of time before the election. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, the previous Conservative government championed uh, the Canadian-European trade agreement, kind of a, an east-west trade agreement, if you will, but across mm -hmm. continents. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, that required vision. It required political leadership. So this comes back to uh, this discussion about interprovincial trade barriers within Canada. You know, we're busy signing free trade agreements with the United States, which I'm in favor of. We're signing trade agreements with Europe, which I'm in favor of. But we don't have our own internal free trade agreement for Canadians <laughs> from absurd, Newfoundland yeah. to British Columbia and all points in between. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And why doesn't that make sense? Because it's costing all of us as consumers billions of dollars. There have been multiple studies that have been done by uh, various think tanks and advocacy groups that have pointed out that this is costing uh, individual Canadian citizens, consumers who, who show up at, at stores, at restaurants, at you know wherever, it's costing them a lot more money. So we do require that. And you know just to circle this back to uh, the Hudson Bay uh, Energy Export Terminal, you know this is a an important project for Canadians. This is like uh, this is like the Trans Canada Highway. You know, this is like the National Railway, and so it's imperative that we have leadership in order to get things like Hudson Bay done. It's important that we build a national hydroelectric power grid. Now, I'm not saying we need to nationalize that. I'm not in favor of that. But we, you know, we require the federal government to work with its provincial counterparts in the private sector and to say to business and other levels of government, what can we do in order to quarterback uh, a national hydroelectric power grid? Because again, that's another one of those nation building projects, which will benefit us as a nation economically, and it will benefit future generations of Canadians. So you know, we don't have that vision. We don't have that leadership or that clarity right now, and nor have we for some time. And that's because political parties, unfortunately, are more interested in the immediate headlines that may appear in the, you know, in the Globe and Mail or the National Post or, you know, some other newspaper. And unfortunately, those kinds of short-term, uh, those short-term focuses uh, overtake longer term planning and vision, right? So the way I look at it is that um, is that your 
your worst day in government is always going to be better than your best day in opposition. So if you're fortunate enough to form government, then use that time that you have to, to have a vision, to plot out a roadmap for the future of Canadians that will benefit the country. And if governments do that, they will be rewarded by Canadians. You know, the Canadians will reward them and reelect them and not necessarily reelect them with minority parliaments, but will reelect them with majority governments. But that requires leadership. It requires political courage and it requires vision. Yeah. You know, the, you talk about vision and it seems like throughout the country, we're not able to do anything big and we can't really do anything quickly. And, you know, you talk about pipelines, for example, even when pipelines get approved, it takes forever. They often get canceled or the, the private sector just says, look, we don't, we don't have any faith in the regulations and the way the government manages things. So they shut the projects down. There've been uh, LNG projects shut down. Um, and then you look at the procurement system, in the military, just an absolute mess. I mean, a decade to buy new fighter jets. I mean, it's, it's absurdity. Do you think, do you think that's corruption? Do you think it's just an attitude problem? Do you think it's just a country, as you talked about before, hasn't really faced many threats, so we just kind of don't have to take anything seriously? What do you think is the reason behind the fact that we, not only do we not have a vision, but whenever we even try to do something um, somewhat big, it, it never happens or it takes forever? Well, I think you've touched on two of the answers to that question. So the first answer uh, is that it does require vision and leadership, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we know that we often lack that. So then the second part of that problem is that uh, when it comes specifically to the military, and we've touched on this as well, is that Canada has been fortunate um, to, you know, to live in a, in a peaceful part of the world. Uh, but that's not an excuse for isolationism, right? We know based off of what's happened in Russia uh, and Ukraine, that that has a direct impact on every one of us, right? So when we go to the gas pump to fill up our, our car, that has a direct impact on our wallet. When we go to the grocery store and the cost of groceries have gone up because the energy that's required to transport the goods from wherever it was grown to eventually your supper plate, that has a, a, an impact on your wallet. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to the military, um, you know, we lack that, that vision. And the part of that problem is that often politicians don't want to disappoint people within their own constituency, within their own communities. So if you have competing interests, let's say when it comes to aircraft, uh, you're left with a problem where Canada has a 40 year old uh, F-18 fighter jets. And yes, I know your listeners are yelling right now and they're saying they're CF-18s. But they're basically the same aircraft. Does uh, our country really pretend that they're Canadian? Is that what the CFA, CF thing is about? Yeah, yeah. So huh. it's, a, it's a designation specifically uh, for the Canadian uh, military. But they're U.S. But, built, right? Yes, that's right. So, but the, the point <laughs> is, is that, you know, you have these competing political interests where you have, you know, multiple companies that make aircraft. And they all lobby extremely hard and good for them. You know, they're doing what they need to do. Uh, but it requires political leadership to make a decision. And sometimes that means disappointing, uh, you know, some 
industry players. And, uh, and that is a, a price that, uh, that has to be made. So yeah, sorry to interrupt with the CF 18s, were they built in the United States or were they built in Canada? Cause wasn't that the controversy with Mulroney? It was, I think there was a cheaper, it would have been cheaper to do it in Manitoba, but for political reasons, he wanted to send the contract to Quebec. And that kind of drove some of the reform party sentiment at the time, I think. Yeah, so in 1987, uh, we're going back decades now. Mm -hmm. So what happened in 1987 was that you had uh, Bristol Aerospace, which was based in Winnipeg, uh, which is now uh, known as Magellan. Uh, But at that time, it was called Bristol Aerospace. So uh, Bristol Aerospace had a a large uh, corporate headquarters, uh, you know, infrastructure in Manitoba, in Western Canada. And then uh, we had Bombardier uh, based in Quebec, uh, which is connected to uh, some of these big sort of procurement uh, projects. And, uh, you know, for a bunch of different reasons, which I've never really been able to fully comprehend, um, those contracts were given to Bombardier. Uh, and and good for Bombardier. I don't want them to come and see us for talking about them. You know, you, you did a great job on securing your contracts. Uh, but, you know, there were some questions around it because it's, you know, look, part of the problem is the tendering process itself for any any of these big contracts. So if a tendering process is either left too vague and too open, then anyone can apply and almost anyone can be awarded uh, a tender. Uh, But then by the same token, if a tendering process is too specific and too narrow, then one can be accused of trying to uh, shut out uh, different private sector uh, players in order to compensate one particular player. So again, that's one of these things where it requires leadership, right? So whether we're talking about icebreakers or we're talking about uh, airplanes or we're talking about ships or whatever it is, uh, it does require some hands-on process. You know, and ideally what we would want to see or what I would like to see is uh, even if it's a majority government, I would like to see the opposition parties uh, brought into those discussions when it comes to uh, procure, uh, procurement and, and sort of how those contracts will be written. Now, I, I realize that we have uh, government officials that, you know, through the bureaucracy that, that help create these things and through different agencies that are connected to the military or the Coast Guard or so on and so forth. But the point is, is that we, the point is, is that there's room for improvement and, uh, and we should be encouraging that. And hopefully if we do that, instead of waiting 10 or 20 years, or 30 years to replace helicopters, uh, you know, they can happen in under a decade. And, uh, you know, that goes back to this talk that we're having about, you know, vision and, and political leadership and, and those kinds of things. For tendering, is it, uh, you know, is it the law that there has to be competition like every single time? Because I always imagine, for example, we talk about the, you know, whether we're going to get F-35s or the Saab fighter, Say Canada was attacked tomorrow, there must be a provision where the government could immediately purchase, you know, whatever fighter jets they needed, right? 
you know, so is it, does the government have to say we're going to have a competitive bid or can the government just say, you know, we want F-35s, we're going to buy them? I mean, is there anything legally stopping them or is it just kind of the convention or the, the history where you're supposed to put it to a competitive bid? Well, so it depends on the situation. I know that's not an answer you want to hear, <laughs> but so if it's an emergency situation, so let's say hypothetically that Canada was attacked militarily. Uh, and we needed to respond, uh, then the federal government has the ability to go out and um, essentially buy what it needs if it, you know, if it has the money to do so. Uh, but outside of those kind of special circumstances, uh, convention is that you, you create a tendering process where you, you, know, you, in, you put it out in the marketplace and you invite uh, multiple people in industry, wh whatever industry we're talking about, uh, to step forward. Uh, now, there are, there will be cases where sometimes no industry player wants to step forward, maybe because they don't have uh, the particular capability at a moment in time uh, to satisfy, you know, whatever's being asked of them from the government. And the government uh, can so always write the bid up to exclude everybody except one if they're careful enough right you can write it in such a way that only one person or one company qualifies i suppose yeah that could happen as well and uh obviously the problem with doing something like that is that especially in a minority government situation is that the opposition parties would quickly look at that and, and see and, and and make political hay uh you know if that was being done so governments are always very careful about that and one of the reasons why they are is because if you have multiple uh players that are chasing a particular government contract through a tender process uh you know governments especially if geographically they're in different parts of the country that can create real problems for a government because that goes to our earlier discussion where you can create the perception that you're pitting one region against the other. Yeah, someone's uh, always going to lose and is not going to be happy about losing, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah so it's, uh, it's a long, uh, very complicated process that uh, often has a, a lot of headaches associated with it. Uh, but it is something that, uh, that we need to do a better job of because, you know, as we have touched on here, we have uh, military fighter planes that are four decades old, some 40, 42 years old, in some cases older than that. Uh, you know, we have uh, older uh, helicopter uh, craft that need to be uh, replaced. And, you know, we have other issues related to the military that we need to source equipment on. So, you know, so all of these things play into it. But at the end of the day, you know, we require vision and leadership. So. You know, one of the things I'd like to see um, Canadians embrace and political parties embrace is a free trade agreement with India. And the reason why I feel that's important is because I'm a firm believer that we need India to be a counterbalance uh, to the questionable uh, behavior and aspirations that Beijing has in mainland China. And, uh, you know, I think that a free trade agreement between Canada and India would benefit us economically. And it, over time, it would help us develop India uh, to become 
a uh, an economic and military counterbalance uh, to mainland China. And I think that's important because whether we're looking at uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan and the relationship with the Taliban, uh, or we're looking at Taiwan, uh, or quite frankly, uh, Moscow, quite often all these different, uh, although these are three different uh, situations, uh, the common theme in all of them is problems that are being created or enhanced by Beijing. And as China continues to grow, that problem is going to increasingly become uh, more and more concern because they are a strategic competitor to us. And so it's important that we find partners globally that share uh, common values and vision uh, that we have as a nation, right? So one of the benefits to India is that it's the world's largest democracy and it's always trying to improve and build upon its democracy. It has a common uh, legal system with Canada, uh, with uh, the United States, with the United Kingdom, with Australia, with New Zealand, with parts of Europe. You know, so there's a, there's a common legal system. There's a, a common uh, government system through a, a functioning democracy. Uh, you know, it's a country that also believes in entrepreneurship and free enterprise. And uh, so economically, there are, are common uh, goals or visions. And uh, I think it's important that in the coming years that we make India uh, a partner of the West rather than a partner of Moscow. And, uh, and I think now is the time uh, to start those discussions with India because in uh, the last 12 months, we've watched uh, China interfere with sovereign Indian territory on what's referred to as the line of actual control. And so I think Indians are starting to recognize the fact that their future may be better aligned with Canada and, uh, and many of the Western partners than with a place like Beijing. Yeah, it certainly seems like we're in a new Cold War. You know, I think politicians here are loath to admit that and use that kind of rhetoric, but it's pretty obvious that's where we're at. I mean, obviously, relations with Moscow are you know, worse than they've ever been. Uh, you could say um, even worse than much of the Cold War in terms of some of the threats that Russia's, you know, talk about nuclear weapons, uh, the disconnect of Russia from the global financial system. I mean, this is about as, as bad as it gets. And so, do you think that, you know, politicians here are kind of trying to hang on to, you know, the past, kind of hoping this is all just like, it's just a temporary shift, we're going to go back to normal soon enough? Or do you think they're starting to realize that it is a very different world? It's a world where we're probably going to need more military spending, we're going to need a more realistic outlook, we're going to, globalization is going to shift into, you know, two separate globalizations. It's not going to go away necessarily, but it's going to be much more split, you know, we're disconnecting from uh, autocracies and deepening ties with democracies, what do you think it would take for political leaders in Canada to, I don't know if I'd say sell that to people, because I think Canadians are really ahead of many of our leaders to understanding it, 
but to acknowledge that new reality and act on it. Well, one of the worrisome points that you're mentioning is that in the face of this international upheaval that we have witnessed over the last 45 days, uh, specifically with you know Russia invading Ukraine, uh, our politicians in Canada, um, you know, across the political spectrum, that will say ridiculous things like "we need to get tough with Russia." I mean, that's just a, an empty platitude that means absolutely nothing. If we're going to get "quote unquote" tough with Russia, uh, then that means we need to uh, re. Uh, focus and realign uh, much of the uh, the international business community in a way that it doesn't have to rely uh, on Moscow uh, and Beijing, right? So one of the first steps to that would be, as a Canadian, would be for us to go down the road of Kanzuk. So that is the free trade agreement between uh, that's being talked about and proposed by many uh, between Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. So that's that's the first step uh, on how we can get tough with Russia or Moscow and Beijing. You know, a free trade agreement with India uh, allows us to move much of the manufacturing sector uh, from mainland China into India. Uh, by playing around with the tax code. So there's something of substance that provides substantive uh, answers to the problems we're facing. Uh, and instead of talking about uh, Energy East, uh, talking about Hudson Bay uh, and, and making Churchill an export international terminal, energy terminal, uh, allows us to remove much of Putin and Moscow's economic power, and that's oil money. And so those are how, you, that, that is how you get tough with Moscow. It's not through empty platitudes and funny little tweets that mean nothing. It's by actually talking about these topics that you and I have been talking about for the last, you know, half hour or whatever. Yeah, you know, let's maybe move on to the, the conservative leadership race. Obviously, it's connected to everything happening in the world because they're, you know, everyone running in that race is promoting themselves as someone who can take over and run the country at a very uh, unstable time in the world. What are your thoughts on on the race as it stands? Who do you think is the front runner? I, I think there's how many people? Eight, eight or nine people now? There have been a few lesser known candidates enter the race recently. Yeah, so the, the we're up to uh, about seven or eight candidates right now. And from what I understand, there's another two or three that are jumping in the race. Huh. So clearly the front runners would be uh, Conservative Member of Parliament, Pierre Polyev, uh, Brampton Mayor, uh, Patrick Brown, and former Conservative leader and Quebec Premier, Jean Charest. So they would be kind of the three uh, big front runners in this as it stands right now. But a lot could change over the next... Uh, you know, three, four months. Um, and then you have uh, what I like to call a kind of some mid-tier uh, players. Uh, so you have people like Leslin Lewis, uh, who had a strong showing uh, in a previous Conservative Party leadership race. Uh, and then you have uh, a number of individuals like Roman Babber, who's a provincial 
uh, or former provincial conservative uh, MPP. I think he sits as an independent now, but yeah. I, you know, if I, if I got that wrong, then I stand correct. No, he's, he's still, uh, still an MPP, but independent now. Yeah. yeah and then you have uh, HSN, who's a, a sitting federal conservative member of parliament, who's jumped in the race. And uh, there is uh, one or two others. I apologize. I just don't have all their mm -hmm. names. Uh, and that's okay, because uh, if I'm forgetting their names, that means most voters will probably forget mm -hmm. their names as well. Yeah, they've got some work to do on the name recognition front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you know, there's a chance that some other players will jump in. So as it stands right now, it looks like, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, when it, and again, these are not endorsements nor criticisms here. I don't mm -hmm. want your audience to think I'm uh, picking or choosing one over the other. So I'll, I'll list the pluses and negatives. So you have uh, Pierre Polyev, who's obviously a, uh, a social media king, and nobody understands the game of social media analytics uh, better than Mr. Polyev. Uh, so he's someone that brings a unique uh, skill set uh, to the conservative, to as a potential conservative party leader, um, you know some of the the downsides to Mr. Polyev is that uh, in in some quarters uh, he's viewed as um, being uh, overly concerned with populism, if you will, over um, traditional uh, conservatism. Um, and then if we look at Jean Charest, uh, so what's, what's his positive skill set that he brings? So Mr. Charest is a proven commodity, uh, who's been elected, you know, multiple times has governed. Um, so he brings a, a skill set of understanding, you know, how the levers of government work, how the big decisions are made and how to move things along. So what is the downside? Uh, to Mr. Charest for some Conservative Party members. Um, you know, geographically, unfortunately for Mr. Charest, uh, you know, through no fault of his own, you know, he just happened to have been born in Quebec. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he is from Quebec. Uh, and so there are many in the Conservative Party uh, that would look at, at that with distrust for a host of different reasons. Um, and then obviously the, the, the other front runner is uh, uh, Mayor uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. So what does Patrick Brown uh, bring to the table uh, that's a positive? Uh, he has a, a proven track record of uh, being able to bring out the vote and organize in uh, the suburbs of Canada uh, and, uh, and with uh, the ethnic vote, with, new, with the new Canadian vote, if you will. Uh, and then, so what would be the downside to Mr. Brown? Uh, well, he, he was the former uh, leader of the uh, Ontario Conservative Party, but uh, for a host of different reasons, um, you know, ended up stepping down. And some of those uh, issues have created some problems amongst, you know, some people in the Conservative Party base. So amongst the three frontrunners, I think we have three... Uh, you know, three great uh, choices uh, to choose from that bring a lot of really important skill sets uh, to the possibility of becoming Prime Minister of Canada. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and they, each one of them has their own baggage that they're going to have to try and find a way to deal with. Uh, as far as the other candidates go, I mean, quite frankly, Spencer, I haven't really paid that much attention uh, to some of the lesser known candidates. That's not to say they're not great potential leaders. It's just, I don't know enough about them. What I will say, which may upset some of your listeners uh, or viewers, is that I do think Lustin Lewis is problematic. And the reason I say that is because um, she has, from my perspective anyways, she has said uh, what I think are some questionable things uh, when it comes to um, vaccines and uh, how well vaccines work. And, and I also think uh, she, I don't think she's uh, questioned vaccine effectiveness. I mean, people have the right to do that, first of all. But I don't think she said that people, you know, that they're bad. She's just said it should be a choice for people, which does represent what probably the majority of conservatives think. I mean, it's not that's not a fringe position by any means. Yeah, I don't think that she said that they're bad. I mm -hmm. think that the, the choice of words that she uses uh, when describing them, I, I think, is a little bit problematic. And the, and the other issue that I, I again, I'm putting my mm -hmm. cards out there. So. Yeah. One of the issues that I have as well with Lustin Lewis, uh, and many conservatives will disagree with me on this, and that's fine, where, uh, is that I don't think that there's an appetite in Canada uh, to talk about uh, social conservative uh, issues related to abortion and or uh, marriage. Um, that's not to say that social conservatives are not passionate about those issues, uh, but I think Canadians at large uh, have more or less put those issues behind them. And, uh, and so that's, that, that's, uh, look, I, I think out of all the candidates, I think the one that would create the most problems for the electability of the conservative party when it comes to forming government would be Miss Lewis from my perspective, but you know, I could be wrong. And if she wins the leadership and becomes prime minister, well, all the power to her. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think, you know, the, it's a lot of it is tone too in terms of leaders. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk of social conservatism. I think even within the conservative party, certainly there's no appetite to revisit, you know, marriage right and to change the law. That's never going to happen. The country's 85 to 90% in favor of, you know, uh, marriage equality, however people define it. Yeah. Let so me just jump in change. there, Spencer, you know, right yeah, quick. I, go ahead. I, I apologize. So I, mm -hmm. I agree with you on no when it comes to tone and the type of rhetoric that's used. So one of the, the problems that I think the conservative party is going to be facing in this leadership race, and, and I've touched on this a little bit, is that your best day in opposition is always going to be worse than your worst day in government. And that's because if you have the office of the prime minister and, and the roles of cabinet, you can affect change. You can pull those levers of government, you know, you can adjust the dials, you can, you can do things that have a direct impact on Canadians from coast to coast to coast. The problem as I see it is that the Conservative Party over the last decade has essentially become what I like to call a giant fundraising operation. And so instead of focusing on what it takes to form government and win elections, in some cases, not all of the time, but in some cases, it's more interested in driving uh, social media likes and shares and comments 
in order to drive analytics uh, numbers up, in order to drive fundraising dollars, in order to uh, be able to hand out lucrative contracts to all kinds of people that are looking for jobs, um, either with the party indirectly or directly in these kinds of things. And so I do think that a conservative party uh, in Canada needs to focus on wanting to be government, on being electable. And I think those are the lessons that we can learn uh, from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who governed Canada for a decade. Those are lessons we can learn from former Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who uh, governed for almost a decade as well. Um, and that's because they, they looked at, at many of these issues and they said to themselves, what are the issues that will unite Canadians and allow us to form government? And what are the issues that are going to keep us away from government? And the ones that would keep them away from government, they kind of politely jettisoned them. And they kind of said, we're going to set that stuff aside because it's not helping or benefiting us right now. And, uh, and we're going to focus on the things that, that unites Canadians. And, you know, people that belong to advocacy groups, uh, if their concern is whatever their issue is within an advocacy group, then they should work to shift the culture of the country at large. And once the culture of the country at large changes to whatever it is that advocacy group is promoting, then political parties, whether it's the Conservative Party or other parties, will be more inclined to embrace it and more inclined to, you know, to lead the public on those issues. But first, you need to shift the culture. So this is why I go back to my point that your... Your worst day in government is always going to be better than your best day in opposition because uh, in government, you can affect change and in opposition, you can cheerlead from the sides and you can, uh, you know, you can throw eggs from the sides, but you can't do much else. Where would you draw the line? Because I, I think you're right about tone to a large extent, but one thing I do hear um, sometimes from, I guess, what I would call the establishment media is an effort to almost police what the conservatives are allowed to say and kind of keep them in a box. So an example would be the way they often refer to Polyev as extreme. You know, I'm seeing more of that in, in much of the media. You know, Polyev is extreme or he's really right wing. If you actually look at what he's saying, this is mainstream conservative thinking, you know, limited government, less government spending, lower taxes, uh, fewer regulations. He's not saying anything that is extreme by any means but he's kind of being cast that way by much of the media. So where do you draw the line between, yes, the conservatives need to be careful about their toe and they need to appeal to a wide range of people, but not being so careful that they basically say anything conservative is too dangerous. Or we're just going to, we're going to not do any. I mean, I think that's what happened to Aaron O'Toole. He was so afraid of the media accusing him of being too right wing or too conservative that he just surrendered on many issues, the carbon tax, you know, gun policy, he flipped in the middle of the election, demoralized a lot of his own people. So how, what would you advise, you know, conservative leadership candidates? Where, the, where do you think the line is between, yes, you have a tone that's, you know, appeals to a large portion of the population, but you're still also a conservative at the same time? Yeah, so I mean, I think if we look at, if we look at Aaron O'Toole and we look at what I believe are, are one of the two issues that, uh, prevented the Conservatives from winning uh, the federal election in the summer, this past summer of 2021. 
So if we look at the firearms uh, issue in Canada, what I would suggest to conservatives is that, first of all, Canadian conservatives understand that we are not the United States and that we have a, a different country and a different set of cultural norms. With that being said, there is a large percentage of Canadians that numbers in the millions that own firearms. So the, the answer to, I believe, to deal with that political issue is to say, we're content with the status quo. In fact, I would argue that most Canadians don't see a need for additional regulations. Would that be and the status argue, quo after the new regulations the Liberals brought in or before? Because that becomes well, the question. The status quo always changes. The Liberals bring in more legislation. And then yeah. if the Conservatives want to go back to where it was four or five years ago, they're accused of, oh, they're, they're going to let guns for, go free everywhere, right? When obviously the main problem with gun crime is the urban areas. Yeah, well, look, I... Again, I'm not an expert when it comes to, uh, to firearms, but all I would say is if, if, we, if we look at whatever the, the regulations are today when it comes to firearms, I think that there's probably general consensus across the country that that's probably fine the way it is. But I think what concerns many people in the firearms community is that they don't want to see new or additional or strengthened regulations, which, uh, you know, becomes a bigger problem. So I would argue that the answer for a federal conservative party is to say, the regulations as they stand today, in March of 2022, we're content with that. We're not going to play around with it. We're not going to strengthen them. We're not going to weaken them. We're going to leave them the way they are. And, and I do think that most Canadians would be happy with that. Um, it does kind of give the initiative to the Liberals, though, right? Because then the Liberals will bring in, probably with their NDP coalition partners between now and 2025, they'll probably bring in more stringent regulations. And then will the Conservatives have to say, oh, we're fine with the regulations as they are in 2025? I think that's some of the criticism that the Conservatives justifiably get is they don't really conserve much of anything, right? Like the country constantly moves to the left. You know, the Liberals kind of define... Um, you know, what issues can be discussed, how they can be discussed. And the conservatives just kind of you know, say, oh, they, yeah, we, we're not a fan of this. But then the liberals do something and they say, oh, we're just going to keep it as it is. But the country keeps moving in a more liberal direction. So it's, it's, it is a challenge for them, right? Because if well, you look, keep I, I think ground, that, that's not good for you. Uh, look, I think that there's a, a roadmap for a conservative majority government in this country. Uh, but that roadmap is going to essentially is going to focus on two issues uh, that are going to be intertwined. So it's a combination of uh, business and uh, and trade in combination with foreign affairs and military. So what do I mean by that? I think that uh, a conservative party, as you know, we've talked, should be advocating for a free trade agreement with India. I think a conservative party should be advocating forcefully for Kanzuk. I believe that a conservative party uh, should be forcefully arguing the merits of why uh, a Hudson Bay energy export terminal is good for Canada. I also believe that uh, in order to appeal um, to the suburbs of Canada, um, 
and not just for that, but because it, it just makes good sense, is I think the conservatives should embrace uh, green energy, but I, I don't think they should be embracing wind turbines mm-hmm. and solar panels. I think the conservatives should be making a forceful case as to why things like hydroelectric power is a good green initiative for us to have as a country. And I also think that conservatives should be making the forceful case why nuclear power generation is also uh, an imperative uh, goal uh, for Canadians to move forward on. And not, not three or four decades from now or two decades from now, but we should be having those discussions today. You know, what can we do to build more nuclear power generation in all of the provinces across the country? Because the combination of, of that with hydroelectric power, that would allow the conservatives to go to the suburbs of Canada, what I like to call mainstream Canada, and to go there and say, we have a credible, legitimate green policy that's based on nuclear and hydroelectric power. And I think that Canadians would look at that and they would say that's a lot more appealing than wind turbines and solar panels. Maybe I'm naive, but you know that's what I think. So, And then to tie all this in with the foreign affairs and military side of things, you, we do have to have that discussion about the North that we've touched on here today. And we also need to talk about, uh, you know, when it comes to our military, what are we going to do to meet our NATO commitments so that we can help out our international partners when they need help, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's Taiwan a decade from now, or whether it's India and, and China incurring into sovereign Indian territory. So, you know, there is... There is a playbook, I think, that conservatives uh, could do to win, but it's gonna it's gonna require a new roadmap. You know, it's gonna it's gonna require some some leadership and and to say to social conservatives, uh, look, we understand that your issues are about abortion and marriage, but we're not going there. Uh, this is where we're going, and uh, you know, it's gonna require. Uh, saying to the firearms community, we understand your issues. We're not going to make them more complicated for you, but we're not going to lessen it. We're going to leave the status quo. And I think if they do that and they focus on, on also on interprovincial trade, like I really think a conservative party needs to promise Canadians that they are going to use the constitutional power, the, the, the commerce clause in the Canadian constitution in order to move uh, interprovincial trade um, across the country, and I think if they do those things, that they can position themselves to win. But I think they have to want to do that, and that you know that requires courage, and that requires you know vision and leadership. And if they don't want to do that, well, I guess that's fine. I guess you know the liberals will govern for you know another decade or whatever. It does seem like in this country, the liberals do get to set the narrative because we've been hearing, you know, the, um, the whole social agenda, you know, kind of um, social, social conservative kind of fear mongering ever since Harper was in. And, you know, it was always it was always about to happen. Right. It was always, oh, Harper's going to do his hidden agenda once he gets in. So he gets into 2006. Oh, he's going to do it next time. He's just being smart. He's waiting. 2008 gets a majority. They said, oh, just wait till it gets a majority. All the social conservative stuff is about to happen. Gets a majority, doesn't do it. 
And then it still kind of comes up in the media. And the same with, you know, the gun issue. It's so interesting that factually, the vast majority of gun crime problems in this country happen in urban areas with guns that are in most cases already banned or that came in illegally over the border, right? But somehow the liberals are able to constantly force the conservatives to be playing defense, basically, right? They're always defending, saying, oh, no, we're not that socially conservative. Or, oh, we're, we're not going to let everyone just go around and, you know, have guns. What do you think is the reason? Because we talked, you talked a bit about fundraising. The conservatives raise a massive amount of money, I think more than mostly the other parties combined. And I often think to myself, you know, if you're raising all this money, surely you should have a very, you know, powerful uh, communications ability. You should have a very organized uh, communications platform. You should be the best on social media, you should be putting out slick ads all the time. And you should be able to kind of change and set the narrative in the country. And yet they're constantly on the defensive. So what do you think is the reason that despite all the money they get, they seem to struggle so much to communicate? Well, the Conservative Party is one of the most bureaucratic uh, parties in Canada. So that Mm -hmm. will, Conservatives listening to this right now will be horrified uh, with what I'm saying. But that is the truth. So if we look at, uh, let's say, the, the Liberal Party, for example, and we contrast that with the conservatives and we look at their fundraising abilities. So the conservatives are really great at fundraising, as, as I alluded to earlier. They're basically a giant fundraising operation when it comes to driving social media analytics. Um, but they have a, a large staff of people that they have to pay. And so they become quite cumbersome. And the Liberal Party has a much, much smaller uh, branch, if you will, of fundraising people. And so the money that they raise can more of it as a, as a, pr- a percentage of the money that's raised, a greater percentage of it can be applied directly to election campaigns and those kinds of things that you're touching on. So the Conservatives need to do a better job at becoming less bureaucratic and less cumbersome. But that's the problem that I've argued now for years. And it's, it's a problem that developed um, in 2017, thereabouts, uh, 2016, 2017, where the party was more interested in, uh, in doing fundraising operations uh, than it was in preparing for election campaigns. And, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a huge problem. And it's, it's one that I know uh, many in the party will disagree with me on and, and they'll fundamentally say that I'm wrong, but I don't believe I am. I believe that they're cumbersome and they're bureaucratic. And uh, in some cases, not all of the time, but in some cases, there are people who would rather remain in opposition than in government. Because when you're in opposition, there's no responsibility. There's no decisions. There's, you know, there's no buck that stops at you. You get to criticize um, and you get to enjoy the, the benefits of uh, you know, seeing your face in the newspaper and a, a nice six-figure salary, but you don't have to take on the responsibility. And so when conservatives decide they want to win elections, uh, then things become much more serious, right? Because now you have people in cabinet, you have people that are responsible to the taxpayer that have to answer to the taxpayer. And there's real consequences. And there's real consequences, exactly. And there's much more public scrutiny when you're in government than there is when you're in opposition. 
So again, I sound like a broken record, but uh, in this conservative party leadership race, I would advise everybody uh, before they mark their ballots to ask themselves which of the candidates uh, has the best ability uh, to break through into the suburbs of urban Canada, you know, whether that's in uh, the greater Vancouver area, uh, you know, throughout the province of Ontario, uh, the suburbs of Montreal, so on and so forth. Because the Conservative Party has the rural base down perfectly, right? The Liberals are never going to win votes in rural Canada. And quite frankly, the New Democrats are becoming less and less a factor in rural Canada. So if the Conservatives want to win, they got to appeal to uh, the suburbs. They have to appeal to a greater percentage of women. And they have to appeal to ethnic voters in the suburbs of Canada. And, uh, and that's what it's going to require to win. Otherwise, they're going to remain in opposition. Yeah, you know, I think a good way to, to close the discussion, you know, it's something we talked about earlier. It's a little off topic of what we just talked about, but, you know, nuclear energy, and maybe we can broaden it out to just the, the mindset in the country. But it's always seemed like one of the most irrational things in the world to me, where, you know, green energy advocates and governments even in Canada, still we see an opposition to nuclear energy, which just seems it, it's so absurd. And it almost seems, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a conspiracy theory type person, but you almost can't blame people sometimes when they see that, right? You've got a great source of potential, you know, clean energy that governments are using. And then what they're forcing people to use, which as we see around the world, is leading to real economic problems. I mean, there are going to be real shortages of, you know, cheap energy and reliable power, as you talked about. What do you think is the reason governments are so often opposed to nuclear energy when it should be, you know, certainly a huge part, if not the main part of the so-called transition? Well, in the past, governments didn't like to lead. Governments liked to follow. Hmm. I know that sounds bizarre, but that is the reality. I mean, I've worked with hmm. different political parties at the federal and provincial levels across Canada. And Governments like to be where Canadians are at a particular moment in time, and they don't like to jump ahead uh, of where Canadians are. But by the same token, we have decided as a nation across the political spectrum that we want a, a lower carbon footprint uh, when it comes to our uh, energy requirements. I'm not saying a zero carbon footprint, but a lower carbon footprint. So if political parties across the spectrum have agreement on that, then we have to be realistic, right? So we know that nuclear power, and it has a, a great record in the province of New Brunswick, in the province of Ontario, you know, around the country, nuclear power has been a gift for human civilization. And we should be promoting it. And I think that in this day and age, that Canadians understand the importance of it, just like I think Canadians understand the importance of hydroelectric power. But I think it, you know, in cases like this, um, I think it requires, you know, some leadership. That doesn't mean jumping way out ahead of where Canadians are, but I think Canadians are there. And I think Canadians are, are waiting for, for somebody to talk about these issues. And it's not good enough to talk about them. 
like, you know, to put them in an election platform, like page seven, there's a little paragraph that we'll forget about. But I think it needs to be a dedicated part of an election campaign. You know, like a conservative majority government, at the end of a four or five year term, when it leaves office, it will leave behind uh, either, uh, you know, functioning uh, nuclear power generation or the process will be on its way to, to being completed over the course of, you know, two or three terms or whatever it is. Wasn't it the, the small modular reactors or I think it's Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan, I think have been talking about that. So there was some, some of it's happening provincially, but certainly no. no yeah. I'm not effort. a fan no. of that small modular talk at all. No. To be perfectly <laughs> blunt with you, Spencer, I, I think that that it's a great talking point that sounds cute and it sounds like, you know, like you got this idea that you care about, mm -hmm. but the reality is, is that we're a long ways off from small mm -hmm. uh, modular nuclear power generation. Like we're mm -hmm. a very long ways off. It's like but, fusion power. It's been yeah, like it's one of these things where it's something we're talking about. You know, that's mm -hmm. kind of decades down the road. But legitimate nuclear power generation plants, like we have in the province of New Brunswick or Ontario or mm -hmm. you know wherever. Those have a proven track record of supplying energy for a for a mass population, and uh, and we know how they work. We've you know we've built the Candu reactors. We understand the technology, so that to me is uh, much more achievable and doable, and is uh, shows a real sense of of being sincere on the topic. I'm not saying that the small modular people aren't sincere. But they're not being realistic. Like they kind of remind me of um, the hardcore environmentalist that's completely dedicated to wind turbines and solar panels. Uh, let's deal with what we have that works today and that what we know works today. And let's run with that. And then as that technology uh, evolves and develops and, and becomes more cost competitive, you know, then we can start looking at small modular you know, nuclear power generation. But, you know, right now I'd like to see nuclear power plants in every province across Canada. And, uh, and I think the sooner we do that, the better. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today for this discussion. You know, it's been quite informative. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about going forward. You know, the world's not getting any calmer and the conservative leadership race, I'm sure, is going to get more and more nasty as time goes on. It already is off to a pretty rough start. So that's going to continue, I would imagine. But what would you like to, you know, a closing point and maybe talk about your business as well, where people can follow you online and, and what they can, how they can learn more about you? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Clinton DeVoe. Uh, retweets are not necessarily endorsements, as mm -hmm. people say. I like to share different uh, topics and subject matters on everything from sports and entertainment to politics and business. Uh, but what I would ask of your listeners and viewers uh, to do um, is to contact our local politicians at the uh, federal uh, and provincial levels uh, and to demand that, that we do something with Hudson's Bay. You know, this is a, an achievable, practical, doable answer uh, to getting Canadian energy to tidewater and for uh, Canada to play a prominent international role when it comes to, uh, you know, energy needs. And, uh, and the sooner we do that, the better off this will be for, for every Canadian.
All righty. Well, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Spencer. Appreciate this. Take care.